We are living in a day, uh, not unlike other days, but we are living in a day when, when church doesn't exactly bring about good feelings. Uh, one cultural observer says, uh, Christianity is out, Jesusanity is in. We're at a place where people hear Christianity and they think church, formalization, boundaries. Jesus, nice, manageable, personal. Not only that, uh, George Barna, evangelical pollster, not too long ago told the church to basically close its doors. Close its doors, uh, close your doors and learn of other more popular, acceptable ways to tell people about Jesus. And George Barna's no dummy. I think his advice is bad and unbiblical, but he's no dummy. He's no dummy because, again, we, we are tired of hearing about the politics and the scandals and the, the power uh, fights and struggles. And not only that, then the church seems to always be chasing the world and trying to look cool and hip and trendy. And therefore, it's always outdated. And on and on the list goes. Reasons we could write down for not liking church. And there are many of them. Today what we're going to do is be countercultural. Imagine that. Omaha Bible Church. Today we're going to be countercultural. And we're going to talk about the blessings that are ours in the church. This is going to be a pro-church message, a positive church message, a positive message about the church. Uh, and so this morning what we're going to do, my, my intent is to get you, uh, when you leave here, I was going to say my intent is to get you to leave here, that it wasn't going to be right. Uh, my, my intent is as you are leaving later, uh, as you are leaving, that you, you will be praising God for this thing called the church, that you will be all the more committed to being a churchman, to being a churchwoman, to be a church person, because the church actually is a great blessing to us. So I have eight blessings written down this morning. Hopefully we'll get through them. Um, but eight of these to cause us to praise Christ for, for the church. Number one, um, the church is a blessing because it is sure to succeed. The church is a blessing because it is sure to succeed. I should also say, um, we're just taking a, taking a brief break from our study of the gospel according to Luke. Uh, we weren't in it last week. We're not in it this week. Next week we'll probably do something different as well. Then we'll be back on track studying the gospel according to Luke. Um, and so just so you're, you're aware that that's coming, this is just a short break talking about some other important issues. First reason on my list for a reason, uh, for a reason is that the church is sure to succeed. If you have a Bible, I'll invite you to turn to Matthew 16. And for you to see in Matthew 16 that the church, no matter what, is going to be triumphant. No matter what, the church is going to succeed and it will be victorious by virtue of the fact of what Jesus says in Matthew 16. Now, as you're turning to Matthew 16, uh, let me clarify, I'm not saying every church is a good church. The Bible doesn't teach that. Uh, read Revelation 1 to 3 and you see that of the seven churches listed there, there are some really messed up churches, so messed up that Jesus threatens... to make them non-churches. They might still meet, they might still have leadership, and they might still have organization, but his threat there is to, if you will, <sighs> snuff them out, to uh, snuff out their, their, their candlestick, their, their, their light, and make them no longer churches. So please don't misunderstand. I'm not trying to say every church is a good church. I'm not trying to suggest that at all. The Bible doesn't even teach that. It's so helpful to know that. But what we're going to hear from Jesus is the church is going to succeed. Context is Caesarea Philippi, which is like Las Vegas, okay, in the ancient world. You, you don't go to Caesarea Philippi. If you do go to Caesarea Philippi, what happens in Caesarea Philippi stays in Caesarea Philippi, okay? I mean, it's just like hardcore paganism is what it is. Um, it's where you don't go. It's where they have all the altars to the false gods, uh, it's not where if you're a faithful Jew, you want to be spending any time. And if you go there and people find out about it, you're probably in trouble and associated with scandal. Okay? But by now, Jesus has exposed the, the falseness of true religion, if you will. And Judaism is so perverse and corrupt in Jerusalem, associated with the temple. And things have gotten so bad that when he wants to get ready to launch the body of Christ, the church, he goes to Vegas to do it. That's how bad Jerusalem has become. So it's very intriguing in that sense. 
Then Peter makes his confession. He says, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus says in verse 18, here's our verse for now. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will build my church. I will build my church. Sure to succeed. It is going to happen. No matter what, he says it's going to happen. Not even the gates of hell can stop it from happening. Gates of Hades, probably referring to death itself. Oh, indeed, I'm going to give myself up to be crucified. No man takes my life from me. I will lay it down. But he's going to be crucified. He's going to really and truly die. Dead. Not even crucifixion, not even death, not even burial can stop this from happening. No doubt by way of anticipation, he's going to rise again from the dead. But please notice, the church is going to succeed. In the long run, it most certainly is going to succeed. It is as sure as the resurrection it's going to succeed. Jesus is going to build His church. He is building His church. He will build His church. All in anticipation of that one day that will come where we have the marriage supper of the Lamb where you have the uniting of the bridegroom with the bride, the body of Christ. It's a done deal in one sense because Christ's work is done. And so... If need be, let, let that rekindle the, 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 the flame of your heart when it comes to life in the church. What else can you say you're a part of that is guaranteed to succeed? You can say, well, I know my, my salvation is sure in Christ because of the resurrection. Good job. You pass theology 101, Sunday school style. Make sure you add to that the body of Christ, the church, bigger than just individuals, sure to succeed causes me to want to be a churchman causes me to want you to be one causes me to say if you're a Christian you want to be a churchman or a churchwoman or a church person you say I want to be associated with what Christ is associated with once again that that doesn't mean that everything gets a free pass surely doesn't mean that but it surely does mean that something is sure And that's a pretty short list when it comes to things that are sure. That the church is sure to be victorious. Now this this verse has been abused and used for wrong things. Some awful things have been done in the name of what we might call the church militant. The church triumphant. This, This passage most certainly has nothing to do with warfare. Most certainly has nothing to do with armies and conquering nations. Not in the here and now, at least. It has to do with Jesus Christ building His church through the proclamation of His Word as we would anticipate and see later in the end of Matthew. Let's move on. Let's move on to a second blessing that is ours in the church, causing us to want to worship Christ and thank Him and be motivated. Number two, it is what Jesus loves. The church is a blessing because it is what Jesus loves. Jesus loves the church. Ephesians chapter 5 will be our text if you want to go ahead and turn there. And then later we'll be in Ephesians 4, so it'll be worth your time to go ahead and find Ephesians. And in Ephesians 5, we learn about how Jesus loves the church. Okay, think, of, think with me. This is really profound. I mean, you have to almost have a PhD to understand this, so I hope you're really alert. Christians are followers of Christ. Man, we're academic around here, you know. We're, we're smart to figure that out. Well, I'm kind of being silly about it because sometimes the most simple things end up being profound because we forget. True Christianity, a true Christian by definition and what the word means is a follower of Christ. So if we see in the Bible that the, the risen Lord Jesus Christ loves the church and we're followers of Christ... We should love the church too. It would be a contradiction in terms to say, you know what, I love Jesus, but I hate the church. I don't like the church. I just love Jesus. It wouldn't even make sense. And so let's see that Jesus loves the church. Ephesians chapter 5 verse 25 says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the 
church. So interesting, he didn't just feel happy thoughts about the church. He didn't just feel good emotions about the church. Not that he didn't have happy thoughts in his life. Not that he didn't have emotions. But here, he loved the church, and keep reading, and gave himself up for her. It's that kind of love. It's love that actually required sacrifice. I frequently say the one thing that ever cost God the Father anything was to give his son. Nothing's ever cost God anything because he just speaks things into being. The one and only thing that ever cost him anything was the giving of his son. Well, in a similar vein, observation here would be Jesus does whatever he wants. But what costs Jesus is giving himself to buy his bride her freedom. And so Jesus loved the church. Let's keep reading in verse 26. That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. It's a true, genuine love commitment to his church i love the guarantees too i hope i hope you appreciate those guarantees especially in light of the fact that we we see the church now and we see the church is not altogether lovely and we see the church with all kinds of issues even the best churches churches where you get let down churches where you give and don't get churches difficult churches challenging and and you see the blemishes the great thing is Jesus loved the church, not when the church was lovely, just like you. While you were a sinner, Romans 5 says, Christ died for you, okay? Jesus gives himself for the church when she's not lovely, and you're saying she still doesn't look that lovely. He's purifying his church. By virtue of his cross work, he's sanctifying his church. And by that time, by the time when the, the right time comes, when we're reunited with Christ at the marriage supper of the Lamb, we'll be spotless, blameless, and ready because of his already completed work. But make no mistake about it, my friends. Jesus loves the church. Causes me to say, I love the church, and to the degree that I don't love the church, God help me to love the church, because I want to I want to grow in godliness, and I want to grow in Christ-likeness. Give me an increased love for the church. God help me when I, here's a good way to think of it, help me when I see the blemishes in the local church, which is the manifestation of the universal church, when I see the blemishes, help me to remember that, that, that it, the church's is purity is already guaranteed and locked in, and the marriage supper of the Lamb is already on God's calendar. It's going to happen one day, and so it'll help me to live with the here and now, and to anticipate what will become a reality. Jesus loves the church. We won't go there now, but in Acts chapter 20, verse 28, that's why he bought the church with his own blood. As one smart mouth pastor observed, there's a place for smart mouth pastors. I don't know any of them, but um, as one smart mouth pastor observed, you can't love Jesus and hate his wife. I like the observation, as crass as it, as it is. It doesn't even make sense. We understand why that kind of feeling happens. May God help us love the church. Let's move on. Let's move on to number three, a third blessing. Uh, the church is a blessing because it is stabilizing. It is stabilizing. I hope you're still in Ephesians, and now if you just go back to chapter 4, if you were in chapter 5, and we'll see that the, the church is a stabilizing influence in our life, a spiritually stabilizing influence. It helps us to become mature. It helps us to not be um, misled, misguided uh, in Ephesians 4. Just to set you up a little bit, in, in Ephesians 4, it's a, it's a church letter. Um, our Bible says to the church at Ephesus. Um, better yet, some of the older manuscripts don't include the word at Ephesus. It's just blank. 
more than likely based upon that it was a circular letter, meaning originally intended to be to the church at blank. Like the email you might get, you know, that doesn't have your name at the front. It was sent to you and your 400 closest friends. Um, It's meant to apply to a lot of different people. Well, to the church at blank, you fill in the blank. And we do know it was common practice based based upon what it says in Colossians to trade letters. Even if it did have a name, even if it said to the church at Colossae, well, you know that those things that are true in there and very personal will also be applicable in a different sense to the church at Philadelphia or at Ephesus or Laodicea. And so they would switch these letters and they would copy them and trade these letters when they were first coming out. And the older manuscripts of, or some of the older ones of Ephesians, it just leaves it blank. Then when you get your copy, you put your church's name in there because it applies to you because For example, Ephesians is very universal. It's very generic because it's going to fit all people of all time as believers. Well, this is one of those kinds of letters. I'm I'm mentioning that because it came to mind. Um, And I said at first hour, and I don't want you guys to feel cheated. But anyway, um, I'm mentioning it because it's a church letter. There's no way around it. It's about the church. It's it's written to a church. It's talking about church life. It's not uh, individual Christian life, although a lot of it applies to individuals. Make no mistake about it. It's about church. And so with that in mind, that's what I was getting at. Help me, Jesus, to stay on track. Um, Verse 11. And he gave the apostles and the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. This is Jesus giving these gifted individuals, and he's giving it to the church. Verse 12 says, To equip the saints for the work of ministry, or to equip the believers, the ones made holy by the blood of the Lamb, for the work of service or ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. 13 says, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, using that image of a, of a man because he's moving from childhood to manhood. He's trying to accomplish that in the life of the church to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children, immature, unstable. Then he says, tossed to and fro or here and there by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, every wind of teaching, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part talking about body life church life each part is working properly makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love lots of factors there i could emphasize the unity factor in verse 13 i could emphasize the love factor in verse 16 but for now not unrelated to love and unity i i want to emphasize the stability factor No longer children, it says in verse 14. Tossed to and fro, here and there, by waves or every wind of doctrine, as some translations say. That's in the context of the church. Church is a place where there are gifted individuals working together to contribute, to help me, to help you, to be stable. Maturity and stability are related to each other. As you get older, you know, you've been around the block a few times. I've seen, that, I've seen that before. You can help your children. You can help your grandchildren. You can help another generation. Say, if you're even an older child, you can help the younger child to say, you know what, uh, that would be foolishness to get caught up in that. I've seen that before. I mean, I can't wait till my kids someday come home to tell me how, about how they can make all this money. You know, and somebody suckers them into some network marketing kind of thing. And, you know, I'm just going to say, oh, no. But see, they're unstable. They're going to get tricked into thinking, you know, if I can just recruit all of my friends and family and get them to buy overpriced stuff for me, I can drive a Mercedes. You know, and I'm going to try to help my kids realize. I say, well, oh, so you're going to give your money that you could save. Otherwise, what, what day of the week do you get to drive the Mercedes? Because you're helping buy the Mercedes that's free. Anyway, I just had to vent a little bit about network marketing. Um, (laughs) Keep it out of the church. How about that? Um, All of that to say, stability says, you know what? 
seems too good to be true, been there, done that, that comes with maturity. And in the church, because of giftedness, and because Christ giving these gifted individuals where we work together, it's a, it has a stabilizing influence. Been there, done that, we know what the Bible teaches, let us help you. Not tossed here and there by the next trend, the next big thing to come, and oh, we got the big things in, in trendianity, Christianity, right? It's amazing. It's amazing. There, there was a book 15 years ago. I remember when it came out, 20 years ago. I don't know. It, you, you had to have this book. And if you didn't have the secret, maybe we don't want to call it secret because that doesn't sound very Christian. If you didn't understand the secret of this book, the key to this book in this little book, if you didn't have this, there's no possible way you could know God's will for your life. There's no possible way that you could live the fulfilled Christian life. There's no possible... If you didn't have these principles wired, there's no way you, you could do what God wants you to do. prayer of Jabez was all the rage. Most of you in this room have never read the prayer of Jabez. Many of you in this room have never heard of the prayer of Jabez. As Phil Johnson likes to say, uh, in somewhere in America, there's a warehouse filled with Jabez junk. Because the trend is over. As some smart person said, Jabez would have said, all I wanted was more land. You know, it was just a simple request in the Bible that someone hijacked and made a mint off of gullible Christians like you and like me. And you had to have the devotional guide and the leader study guide and you had to have the leather bound version and you had to have the special leather bookmark to keep it open and you had to have special small group discussion, maybe the audio version, maybe something to hang from the mirror of your car. I mean, who knows? There's all the Jabez junk and now we realize you don't need that. We got to have the shack. Or we got to have, oh, then a while later it's purpose-driven this, purpose-driven that, and this is the thing. And it goes on and on and on. And we're too dumb to figure that the publishers, by and large, are owned by unbelievers who are savvy marketers. And they know the most gullible people on the planet are evangelicals. <laughs> Stop it already. Stop it already. How do, how do, we, how do we get rescued from this? No longer tossed to and fro by every wind of Jabez. Right? No longer. Why? Because you're going to have the Bible taught. And you're going to learn. And you're going to learn from seasoned people who've been there, done that, seen that. And this is what the Word of God says. And it's going to create stability in your life, which is associated in this passage with loving you. Which is associated in this passage with bringing unity in the church which is associated in this passage with becoming mature and stable and not gullible anymore. I so love the church. I'm so thankful for gifted individuals who God has brought in my life in the context of the church to help me to be stable. I want you to long for that. I want you to be thankful for that if you have that in your life. It's so good. Sometimes I feel so dumb when people say, Pastor, you know, what's your vision for the next year? What's your vision for the next decade? And what, what kind of vision casting are you doing? I'm like, vision casting? I thought we did that to demons, you know? I don't know what in the world that is, but anyway. How about we're going to preach Christ crucified in 2014? Um, how about if we're going to preach Christ crucified to believers and unbelievers? <laughs> How about that's what we're supposed to do? It leads to salvation for those who aren't saved and it leads to stability to those who are saved. And call it boring if you want. I'm so thankful that we're called to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. One string guitar. Same note every time. And it's freeing and it's encouraging. But guess what? It's meant to happen in the context of the church. That's Ephesians for us. Causes me to say, God, thank you for blessing us with the stabilizing influence of the local church. I'm grateful for that. I'm so glad that so many of you are as well. Think about how the church, and then we'll move on, but think about how the church really should be a safe place. 
It's hard to think that way because of scandals and things like that. But it really should be a safe place. I can come and I can know that, that the Word of God is going to be opened and it's going to be proclaimed unvarnished and it's going to help me. And not only that, I'm thankful that it's, it's a safe place because they're not trying to be trendy and come up with some new kind of gimmick to sucker me in. I'm thankful that they're trying to stand in a long line of godly individuals who've taught the same things and have passed it on like a baton, not, not trying to come up with a new way of saying things. I'm grateful for that. It should be safe. In another sense, it's not very safe. It's dangerous because it might meddle with your instabilities and try to bring you into line to stability, and that makes it dangerous, but it's a good kind of dangerous. It's a good kind of dangerous. Let's move on now. Let's go to number four, a fourth blessing. The church is a blessing because it's where growth happens. It's where growth happens. Really, that's what Ephesians 4 was just about. It's about growth. It's about maturity. And the context, again, once again, is the church. Um, please, please don't misunderstand. I'm not trying to suggest that you can't grow spiritually in any way, shape, or form outside of four walls. Um, I'm not trying to say that. The Bible does talk about individual devotion and commitment. But please also know that it doesn't only talk about the individual. There's a whole lot of emphasis on the corporate. In fact, read your New Testament and look for the corporate, corporate emphasis and you're going to see, you know what, the, the, the believing community is a major emphasis. And it's going to bring about spiritual growth. These different gifts interacting. It's so good to know that I don't have every spiritual gift. It's so good to know that so I can be a better dad and not think somehow that the kids can get everything they need to know from me. It's so good for me to know that between my wife and I, we don't have all the spiritual gifts. It's so good for me to know that the gifting has been given to the body of Christ and so I need you in my life. You need me in your life. My family needs you in their lives because this is how God has orchestrated it and so we need to know that and if we're going to grow and be mature and stable, we need each other. We need the church. Now there's something about that that causes us to feel inadequate but it's a good sanctified kind of inadequacy. It's reality. If you would turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 4, then we'll be in 1 Timothy. So again, trying to have some rhyme and reason as to why we're choosing which passages we're choosing. But if you turn to 2 Timothy chapter 4, I want to say a couple of things that would have to do with spiritual growth. Still, fourth blessing that would relate to preaching. Spiritual growth happens in the church because the gifts, gifts operate in the church. You've got to have the gifts to have spiritual growth. Um, we're not going to take the time to go back to 1 Corinthians 11 like we did last week, but you do have gifts involved there, and it's when the church comes together. When the church comes together, um, we have to see that emphasis in chapter 11. It's not just individualized Christianity. Uh, there's a togetherness. But how about the aspect of preaching when it comes to the life of the church and spiritual growth? 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2 says, here's the command from Paul to Timothy. He's pastoring a local church, the church at Ephesus, and he says in verse 2, preach the word. So Timothy, pastor, preach the word. Herald the word. Be ready in season and out of season. So when it's popular, when it's not popular, in the context is the church, if we kept reading, we won't. But in this verse we'll keep reading where he says, reprove, rebuke. Those are the negatives. Those are, those are where the pastor says, what you're currently believing is wrong. Uh, the way you're currently acting is wrong, if need be. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort. Now there's the positive side. Here's how you should act. Here's how you should believe. With complete patience and teaching or instruction. It's a forceful command at the end of Paul's life to Timothy, who's pastoring this church. Preach the word. Herald the word. Even if they don't want to hear it or if they do want to hear it, this is what you do. And sometimes it's going to sting. Sometimes it's going to uh, mend. But it's what you must do. And I wanted you to turn to that this morning to be able to be reminded of the reality of the preaching of the word of God being used in your life and in my life for spiritual growth. 
Please, I hope you read your Bible this week and have personal devotions. It's a really good idea. The psalmist models it for us to meditate on the Word of God day and night. Biblical precedent for that. But there's also another biblical precedent that we overlook in our over-individualized, self-styled Jesus-anity that Jesus himself wouldn't approve of. There's a unique place in your spiritual development and maturity for you to come under the preaching of the Word of God. I'm using those um, statements purposefully because they've been used that way historically. The preaching of the Word of God. There's a unique place for it in the life of the church. You can accuse me of being self-serving because I'm a preacher. But regardless, the reality is the reality. It's right there in front of us. You need, and I'm going to put myself in the you. You need regularly to have your ears not tickled by stories and tales. But you regularly need, based upon this passage, to have your ears boxed. Your feathers ruffled, if you prefer. Your nose bloodied, if you prefer. Just part of Christianity. It's part of Christian living. It's part of spiritual growth. To have the Word of God say, you're wrong about that. To have the Word of God say, you're misbehaving there. And let me show you the right way, the Christ-honoring way to believe and act. It's vital that we are regularly exposed to the preaching of the Word of God. It's right there before us. It's right there before us. That happens in the church. It happens in the church. We don't need to go outside of the Bible to prove this, but just as a little historical color, uh, Protestants, since there's been Protestantism, Christianity starts before then, but let's just have that be a good hallmark time that we identify with as a, a good time in history. Protestants have said there are three marks of the church. The preaching of the Word of God. The right administration of the sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper. And discipline. And if you don't have those three, you don't have a church. Interesting. I think the Bible would be on their side to make the point. Key to a church is the preaching, the heralding of the Word of God. I need it or I'm not going to grow spiritually. You need it or you're not going to grow spiritually the way that God would want you to grow spiritually. It's kind of interesting. Sometimes when we have people start getting on the fringe in the church, and we've been seeing this for a long time now, and maybe they drift outside and they, they have all kinds of other things they do. They're very busy in the life of the church. It's interesting what seems to happen. I'm not saying this is magical what happens, but it's a means that God uses to bring spiritual development. And we'll say, you know what, maybe you need to stop serving in those other areas and regularly be exposed to the preaching of the Word of God because it's a built-in, God-ordained means of grace. It's not the only one, but it is one. I don't know about you, but I have devotions. You know, I, I, to, be, to be honest with you, I got converted reading the Bible going, huh, I'm convicted. <laughs> and it wasn't quite, huh. <laughs> so I don't want to downplay personal devotions at all of the power of the Word of God. But regularly speaking, you know, I'm just not looking to get my nose bloodied in my Christian devotions with my nice cup of coffee that I like and a nice little environment and I'm going to have devotions with Jesus today and I so love it. You know, sometimes what I need is whack! It's going to come and preach you. It's crucial that we see this. It's a means of spiritual growth. We can, I could go off on a tangent about still do, gathering for the church and not preaching, um, but that's another story. Let's move on to a third, or a number five, a fifth blessing that hopefully motivates us to be churchmen and churchwomen. It provides accountability. It provides accountability for believers in general and also for leaders. There's good accountability. 
We're not going to turn there now because I'm going to reference the passage in just a little while at the end of the service. But Matthew 18 is the passage. You can go there if you'd like, but I'm not going to read it now. But Jesus, talking about the church, says where there's sin, you go to the person in private. And if they repent, you've won your brother. Success. That's what you were aiming for. Accountability is good. Okay? Step two, take witnesses. Repentance, you've won your brother. Step three, tell it to the group of Facebook friends you have because they're very effective. George Barna's right. New way of doing church. No. Tell it to the ecclesia. Tell it to the church. It's really hard to have this kind of accountability apart from people being involved in church because it happens in the church. Tell it to the church. And then step four, if there's not repentance, you treat them like a tax collector, um, or a Gentile. They're traitors, spiritual traitors, and they're not welcome in the church anymore. Well, you could say, well, that, that doesn't seem like a very good idea. Well, it's what Jesus said, and he's the Lord of the church, so we're going to do it. But the reality is it's a great idea. Where am I really going to have accountability? Where are you really going to have accountability? Ultimately, you're going to find it in the church, the body of Christ for your good and for your being built up. Regularly, I have conversations. I just had a conversation with a couple that are moving somewhere else and they want to find a good church. And I love those conversations. I love it when people are trying to think through those issues even before they accept the job. Because you know what? It really is important. It's amazing how many people seem to have their act together and they no longer have this loving accountability structure. And the next thing you know, there's a disaster. I need the church. I need accountability. You need the church. You need accountability. Wives, your husband needs that accountability. Husbands, your wife needs that accountability. Insist upon it. It's a built-in, again, I'm going to say means of God's grace. He gives it to us to help us. There's also a place for leaders to be accountable. And I want to make sure I point that out to you. Since you're in 2 Timothy still, hopefully, if you go to 1 Timothy chapter 5, um, just a, a handful of chapters back, You'll see leaders are to be accountable in the church too. And, and how many, how, how, how far this would go in cleaning up some of the scandals at least if the church would do this and if some of the talking heads on TV would, were part of the church and not just part of a kind of loose kind of Christendom, Christianity I should say. First Timothy chapter 5 verse 19 says, Do not admit a charge against an elder. That's a a synonym for pastor or overseer in the New Testament. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. That sounds a lot like Matthew 18. Verse 20, as for those who persist in sin, those who are leaders, those who are elders, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. That's, That's pretty important. That's serious and... When you have a Christian leader who's not associated with a local church, they're outside of that sphere. Dangerous. Super dangerous. What a blessing it is that God gave us accountability in the church, not just for you and for me as Christians, but for those who are in leadership. There's great accountability there. It's sanctifying for the church. It's helpful for the church. It's a mark of a true church. Let's move on now to number six. The church is a blessing because it is historic. It is historic. For the sake of time, I'll just reference two passages. Acts chapter 2. It's where I think most Christians think the church starts. There's a little bit of debate about that, but generally speaking, that's when people think the church started. That's when I think the church started in Acts chapter 2. That's 2,000 years of history. We, we do stand in a long line of godly men and women, 2,000 years worth. I want to be part of something bigger than me. I want to be part of something bigger than a flash in the pan and some kind of trend that comes along. Well, if I'm part of the church, I'm part of something that's 2,000 years old. I, I like that. And there's, there have been some train wrecks along the way and some, some problems along the way, but God has always been building His church. I know He's been always building His church. And always there have been believers. 
And there's a connection there. I'm so grateful for that. And how about this, believers at Omaha Bible Church in the 21st century? I hope you share the desire that I have that what we do, God willing, pass on to the next generation is the same connection to the historic church, which causes me to want to not do it, to, to, to say no to every wind of doctrine. Let's do our very best to be, his, to be historical Christians tied to the once and for all delivered to the saints' faith to be literal with Jude. That's what we want to do. There's a great connection there. There's a great connection there. But not only do we go back a couple thousand years, let's even go back further. Let's even, when it comes to tracing ourselves back to the people of God, let's go back to Genesis. Let's go back to Genesis chapter 12 with Abraham and the Abrahamic covenant, the covenant that makes with God makes with Abraham, the pagan, the idol-worshipping pagan, the lying pagan. He makes a covenant with Abraham that he, that through him, through Abraham, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And then that's used in Galatians to speak of the church. So, yes, you have Israel, the people of God, and yes, you have Israel associated, but not only that, in that same promise, you have the forward-looking anticipation of what would happen and be secured in Christ Jesus, and you'd have all the nations of the earth being blessed, which is why we end up even having what we have in our Great Commission, that we're to go to all nations. I mean, that's got like a flashing sign on it saying, Abrahamic Covenant, Abrahamic Covenant, Abrahamic Covenant, Genesis. So now, we not only have something historic in the church, as far as connection to the people of God is concerned, it's not just 2,000 years old. It's thousands of thousands of thousands of thousands of thousands. And I'll stop there because I lost track. Years old. You want to be part of something historic? Be part of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's awesome. It's awesome. It's bigger than you. It's bigger than me. It's lasting. It's rich. It has a heritage. Number seven and number eight. Number seven... Uh, it's a blessing to be part of the church because the church is a unique fellowship. It is a unique fellowship with unique aims, with a unique purpose. Since you're in First Timothy, I'll choose my text in First Timothy, but we could choose elsewhere. How about First Timothy chapter 3, verse 15? Our fellowship is unique. Our aim is unique. And now remember, fellowship means partnership. Think military image, think athletic image, where you're together, linked with someone to accomplish what you wouldn't accomplish by yourself. Uh, you know, I like pie as much as the next person. Uh, fellowship is not about pie. Um, but that's how we've kind of thought of it, at least the older generation. Um, we think about food and eating too much and all that kind of stuff. Let's have good fellowship. Well, I love food. I love feasting. I'm so glad there's a difference between feasting and gluttony. Anyway, uh, <laughs> special occasion gluttony is called feasting, and there's biblical precedent for that. Praise Jesus. Uh, <laughs> if you feast every day, you're a glutton, and now you're in danger. But anyway... Now, see, you guys don't even have to pay extra for that because I didn't mention that first hour. It just came to me. It's amazing. <laughs> How in the world? Okay. <laughs> Fellowship is where we're together doing something together. Like in, in Philippians chapter 1, we're striving together for the progress of the gospel. We're standing firm for the defense of the gospel. That's in the context of the church at Philippi. Our fellowship is with the aim toward preaching Christ with the aim toward proclaiming the gospel and defending the gospel. That is our unique fellowship that we have, that we don't do alone. First Timothy chapter 3, verse 15 is awesome when it comes to this, where it says, If I delay, this is Paul writing to Timothy, pastoring the church at Ephesus, you may know how one ought to behave or conduct oneself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress or fortress, as some of your translations say, of the truth. The church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. That is a church responsibility, even though he's not emphasizing it in 315, it's still church conduct. In light of the whole book, in light of Philippians um, and other passages, uh, it's definitely holistic what we do. We've got this fellowship where we have the pillar 
of the truth. That is, we hold it up high so everybody can see it. It's the positive message of the truth, the truth about God, the truth of the gospel. And so it's that positive upholding. We do that. We do that together. Not only that, there's that the buttress, the, the fortress, the, the bottom that holds it stable. Used elsewhere, it's talking about the defense of the truth. And we, we have that kind of ministry. The church has that kind of ministry. The church has a truth ministry. How countercultural is that too? He says, the truth. Well, that might be true to you, but it's not really true to me. Nonsense. He says, the truth. The truth of the gospel. There's one and only true truth of the gospel. It's the truth about Christ's life, death, and resurrection. And what do we do as a church? We hold that forward positively and we defend it to our dying death negatively so that it can be upheld and withheld, upheld. It's unique. I've tried to do that on my own. I try to have a ministry myself. But the reality is the church is the pillar and support of the truth. So if I'm going to do that effectively, I'm connected to other believers. And so are you. What other organization can claim that kind of significance? Pillar and support of the truth. There are other good organizations that I hope you're involved in because you're a person made in the image of God and you're called to love your neighbor. So I I hope you're involved in other organizations and I hope you show love for other image bearers. You're not wasting your time. Regardless of what your fighting fundamentalist heritage might be telling you, you're not wasting your time. But there's only one organization that's called a pillar and support of the truth. Translation, therefore, it better be on your priority list. (laughs) It's not one among many equals. It's the one that stands out. You go, wow. Wow. I want to be a churchman. Finally, number eight, the church is a blessing because it is a worshiping community. Because it is a worshiping community. Scratch that. It is the worshiping community. My cultural sensitivities got to me. I said a a worshiping community. I'm so culturally conditioned by the world around me that I don't want to offend anyone, and so I say it's a worshiping community, as if to suggest that there are many. It's the worshiping community. In John chapter 4, Jesus tells the Samaritan woman she's wrong, and so are all Samaritans. He says the Jews are right. Salvation is of the Jews. But then he says, a time is coming and now is because it's, it's there. It's on the brink of happening. It's, it's all uh, climax, climaxing. And, and he says, a time is coming and now is where you will worship God in spirit. It's not tied to temple debates. Because with the spirit uniquely coming, we have the church, which is the temple in 1 Corinthians. A time is coming and now is when you will worship God in spirit. He's looking forward, looking to church life. When you worship God in spirit and truth. Truth having to do with the word of God, yes, but most certainly having to do with Him. And so, when we're talking about the church, we're talking about worshiping that is true worship. And then he says God seeks true worship because there's false worship. There is such a thing. And then he talks about this great reality and he talks ultimately about himself being the truth. Like in John 14. And so when we gather, we gather for unique worship, not because we figured it out and we're so prideful we have the only true worship. No, but by God's grace and by God's mercy, we know who Jesus is and He is the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father but by Him. And we're so thankful that He's been merciful to us. And so we gather for true worship, genuine worship, because genuine worship comes in and through and only in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. And He's the centerpiece of the whole thing. It's awesome. Where else can you go for true worship? You can't. It's impossible. It's called idolatry. 
so we do this. Now, that doesn't mean you don't worship God on your own. I hope today if you're, you know, baking bread or gardening or helping children or your grandparents or doing your job because you got called in or relaxing or feasting. I don't know. I hope you do what you do for the glory of God because everything should be for the glory of God, especially in light of what Christ has done, a la Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and following. It's all worship. But the Bible doesn't only talk about individual worship. It talks about when the church comes together, 1 Corinthians 11. It talks about church worship. It talks about the gathering when we come together like in Colossians 3 and we're singing to one another and that's worship because we're, we're being built up and we're being edified. We're together exalting Christ. It's both and, individual and corporate. I want to be a part of that. I need to be a part of that. In Hebrews chapter 10, believers or professing believers there are scolded because they're not a part of that. It's dangerous even in light of Hebrews chapter 10 to not be a part of corporate worship. The true worshiping community. I got converted coming from a church that didn't preach Christ. Therefore, I concluded that church is bad. Some of you are like that. Not all of you are, but some of you are like that. Similar background. But then outside of the church, the more I learned the Bible, the more I learned that there are bad churches and there are good churches even in the Bible. And by God's patience and His grace, figured out, I want to be a part of a good church. Not a perfect church, because a perfect church is going to be the church reunited to Christ. But I want to be a part of a good church, one that doesn't have an identity crisis, one who preaches Christ and Him crucified, one that's growing in grace. And I'm so thankful to have that clear in my head. And my longing for you is that you'd have it clear in your head and that it would move from your head being in, clear, in clarity to your heart stirring you to be a church woman or a churchman or a church person who is committed and devoted to something that's going to last and it's going to last forever. Father, thank you so much for the church that you're building through your son and by the power of the spirit and we're grateful that one day there will be that great reuniting where we will see christ and we'll be made like him and we're we're grateful for that great reality thank you so much for omaha bible church we know that there's so much that we don't know we know that there are things that we struggle with continue to expose them continue to use your word to reprove us and rebuke us and exhort us and to be patient with us and to teach us. We do love you. We're thankful. Uh, work in our midst. In Jesus' name.